Now to growing concerns about the deadly coronavirus officially hitting the U.S. One of my favorite characters from the animated series and the Pixar movies is the dog Doug from Up. And if you know who I'm talking about, it's that dog who they meet out there on the middle of that plateau and he's the guy who's running around and he's always like, squirrel! And I think the reason why I like Doug so much is because I probably relate to him a little too much. You know, I, being somebody who struggles with ADD, I have found myself easily distracted in a multitude of ways. As staff, we all laugh around here at the fact that I can be in the middle of a conversation with you and uh, it, to me, we're done. I, I have something else I need to go think about. And I will walk away and, and they're all sitting there like, this wasn't over, was it? What's going on? And I just walk off and there have been people who literally say, hey, Greg, and in my head, I'm so distracted. I think, hi, but I never say it. It never comes out of my mouth. That's something hard for me because, man, I can get distracted so yeah, easily. Anyway, my, my point is the distraction can be a big deal. It can be a hindering deal. It can stop you from a lot of the things that you wish you were doing. And this is especially, sadly, true for the church. You see, a church has been given a mission. We as Human beings have a mission, to be quite honest. God has called us all in the image of God to, to make something of His world as His image, but you know we've sinned and gone away from that. But the church is the renewal of that, and we have a purpose. We have a mission that we're about, and we can be excited to reach Corona, but we can get distracted. We can love and live and share Christ and say that's what we're going to do, but to be quite honest, we can get distracted. And the distractions are those things that we're going to be looking at. Because in the book of 1 Timothy, what we're going to discover is that there's actually distractions all over the place. And that our calling as churches and especially leaders is to help us keep the main thing the main thing. And so where we're going to be going in this series called Distracted is in a short series here in the beginning of 1 Timothy. And if you've got a Bible, you can open up there to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I want to give you the opportunity to pull that out and look at that as I give you a little bit of some of the, the background and what's going on in this particular situation. This is a leader's book. This is a book written by Paul, the apostle, who is actually a man of, um, who was born in Tarsus. He was Jewish. Um, Tarsus is, is in another location in, in Turkey. But notice that Saul was once a Pharisee who persecuted the church, hated the church, killed Christians, and actually turns around and comes to know Jesus when Jesus himself, after he's resurrected from the dead, appears to Paul on a road and wakes him to his sin. He gives his life to Christ and becomes one of the greatest missionaries, evangelists we've seen in church history. 
I mean, just a flip in a moment. And then he goes out and he, and he starts mentoring men as he's meeting them. One of these men's name was Timothy. Timothy was his mentee in a sense, and he's training him up, getting him ready to go, bringing him about, and he's going to write a letter to him. And so this letter is really interesting. We get all this information actually in the first couple of verses. Right here it says in verse Timothy chapter 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and our and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a typical beginning to any ancient letter. You got to remember what we're looking at here is the introduction. They didn't say from so and so. They would begin with a. Hey, this is who it's from. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and to who it's to, Timothy. And so when he opens this up, he knows what's going on. But it also gives us some further information. We know that this is a pastor writing to a pastor. So why would we preach about this in a church? If this is about pastors, if this is about leadership, what is the point? Why would we as a congregation look at this? The answer comes to this fact that as the leaders go, so goes the congregation. Let's just be honest. Leadership is that kind of a thing that it guides a congregation. As the leader goes, so that congregation goes. And when we discover what is critical for the leader to know, you're actually discovering what's critical for the congregation to know. When we discover what is important for the pastor to understand and to do, we discover exactly what the congregation is called to do. And so by examining this book, we're not ignoring that this is a leadership book or for pastors, but what it's doing is, is calling us all to that same space, that same knowledge, so we can all be on the same page. And so what we see here is that we want to un get un understand that when the pastor is distracted, when the leader is distracted, when the elders are distracted, when, when the staff is distracted, man, the congregation is going to be distracted. And so that's, that's the beginning here. we got to remember, we have to be a people who are aimed at not being distracted, and that's what this text is going to teach us. Now, before we dive in, um, we're going to encounter some struggles with leadership first, though. And I just need to cover these off, because when we talk about leadership in our culture, uh, it is a very different thing than the ancient leadership. You see, in the biblical leadership, leadership is accountable to Christ first. And we've got to get that uh, in our minds. I think everybody amends that, but I think there's some struggle involved there. There's some, some temptation to, to believe that, no, not, not Christ first, the congregation first. But look at, look at how this is written. Paul says again, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. He, and, and so he is the one being sent by Christ. Paul and Timothy are both under Jesus's authority. You see, Jesus is the, the mentee, the, the spiritual son of Paul in that sense. And Paul's saying, I was sent. Timothy, you're like my son. That means you're sent. Hey, we've got to do these things together. And in reality, they both ultimately will stand before Jesus for their ministry and not the church. You know, that's a pretty important thing for anybody who's in leadership, especially pastors and elders and churches. And that is to remember simply that we will one day stand before Jesus for how we have led. We will stand before Jesus, and He is the one who will ultimately hold us accountable. He is the one who is going to ask us what we did with His flock. 
And I believe this is a very important thing to help guide pastors away from dangerous and sinful paths, away from false teachings and away from sins and things, but back to Christ. Because one day, if we keep it in our minds, we are accountable to Christ with what he's given us, not just the congregation. It's going to keep us from pleasing congregations unnecessarily because we need to be pleasing Christ. And so when a pastor gets that right, it starts to orient the church. And so where our leadership, however, in America is very different, the biblical leadership starts with that. Those leaders are going to be first accountable to Christ. And that means the congregation needs to follow after their leaders. Their leaders are, are leading them as they believe Christ is calling them to lead them. In fact, the author of Hebrews kind of puts it this way very starkly, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And the reason that he says this is that, you know, it's hard for people to follow leaders. If you're not obeying leaders, if you're not following that leader, man, yeah, they're going to groan about it. It's going to not have a lot of joy. It's going to feel really awful as the leaders are trying to guide us to do what Christ has called us to do here at Olive Branch, to love, live, and share Christ. And we're just like, yeah, that's cool. You go do that. I'm going to go do my thing. That can lead to groaning amongst leadership. That can lead to groaning in your pastors. Trust me. And what we want to be able to do is to be the kind of people who are following after our leaders trusting they're following after Christ. But this is hard because you can see their flaws. You can see leaders' mistakes. You can see them mess things up. And at times we want to back up and go, man, I, I, I don't know. Do I really want to follow this person? And it's there that you want to trust that they know that they're going to give an account, that their flaws are there, but God wants to use them. And so be praying for your leadership. Be praying for the staff. Be praying for the elders. Be praying for me. Because leadership is ultimately accountable to Christ and it guides and leads you and you're called to obey and follow that leadership as a congregation. But look, leaders aren't here to serve themselves. They are here, as it says, to keep a watch over your souls. In a real way, we're like the judicial branch of the United States. We're not here to make law. We're here to call the balls and strikes when it comes to the scriptures to take the Bible and apply it rightly, to answer the questions and guide the flock so that they are not out of bounds of the Scripture and your souls are protected, that that's where you're able to stand. Because we need to keep watch. We need to look over everyone. We need to adjudicate from the Bible these different things. That's why uh, oftentimes people come to me and it's like, hey, this is what the Bible really says. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And from my biblical studies and my backgrounds and all the books I read and all that stuff, I may guide them to a different conclusion because I want to keep them led in the right direction. But this is also true that the leadership is accountable to the congregation. First to Christ then to the congregation. Look, we have to answer to the congregation because we serve the congregation. When Paul came into Jerusalem, he had to answer to the leadership in, in Jerusalem. He had to answer to them there in Antioch. This isn't like, hey, I get to do whatever I want. Leadership gets to do whatever. No, there's an accountability to the congregation, first to Christ, then to the congregation. And in fact, that has limits though. Notice how later Timothy's going to write, or Paul's going to write to Timothy, says, don't admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So obviously people can bring these charges, because we, but with two or three witnesses, 
As for those who persist in sin, meaning elders who, who don't listen to that, rebuke them in the presence of all so they can the, the rest may stand in fear. And the point is that what we want to do here is ensure that the elders are guided by Christ but accountable to the congregation and the Word of God. See, this is about the Word of God. It's our ultimate aim, our ultimate desire to focus. And you go, Greg, why are we talking about this? And the reason we're talking about this is we're entering a leadership book. And it's not like our current leadership in the United States where we get to vote for our, our leaders. It is a leadership under Christ. We don't vote for Jesus. And Jesus has given leaders to the churches. He has. And we need to realize that and be okay in following those leaders. And so when we do this, look, there's a tension. Because we wonder, will our leaders lead us astray? Will the leaders take us in a direction we shouldn't go? Some of you remember the Jim Joneses, or you remember the Branch Davidians, or maybe you just think of, of corrupt leaders, the, these, uh, these uh, pastors and others out there that have literally destroyed their churches and their reputations because of the things that they have done. And you know people have walked away from the faith because of a pastor. Those are real struggles. Those are real issues. Because a pastor gets distracted, notice the congregation can get distracted. As the leader goes, so goes the congregation. We need to remember, we need to be careful to keep our eyes on Jesus then, and not just on the leader, but the leader needs to keep his knowledge that he's accountable to Christ first. Now, what about those of you out there, you're, you're Christians, you've studied the Bible for years, so you're thinking, hey man, I don't like how my pastor teaches that passage. I don't think that he's going in the right direction. You know, these kind of things. In the United States, what we do is we actually just kind of get up and vote with our feet because we can vote anyway, and we've got lots of options to go to the pastors that we think are teaching it right. And that's, that's your prerogative, but you need to know when you should vote with your feet. You need to know when is it truly a false teaching? When is it something that should challenge me? When is it something that's different? Because here's the thing, that difficulty of following a leader is always about, are they going to lead me astray? And that's exactly what the book of 1 Timothy is about. These leaders who they were called to follow, these leaders that were supposed to be following Jesus, some of these elders who were teaching in these churches were beginning to teach false teachings. And it's, so it's no wonder that this false teaching is going to be addressed because what it was doing was it was distracting the church. Let's take a look as we continue further into uh, verse 3 here. It goes on, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. And so we're going to start here, that we can easily get distracted. He says we're going to get distracted by different doctrines. We get distracted by speculations. Guys, we can get distracted by speculations or we can be good stewards. That's ultimately what this passage is saying. We as a church, we as leaders can get distracted by speculations or be good stewards. If, if I'm a leader and I'm getting distracted, the congregation is going to get distracted. Guys, you can get distracted and wind up not doing what God calls you to do. Wind up not going in the direction. And so here's the bottom line. Don't get distracted, right? Don't get distracted. That's not our goal. We've got a stewardship. 
Well, what do you mean distracted? What are the kinds of things that I can get distracted about? Well, first of all, we want to see, he says, a different doctrine. He says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. The idea here is a different gospel, a different teaching that leads away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't want to get distracted by any kind of other gospel that is out there. And there are t people out there teaching different gospels, different ideas, different doctrines, and some of them are catching into the church. Timothy knew some of these, and so he was going to rebuke them. In our day, there are some of these things, and it's not our, and we got to not get distracted by another gospel. And in order to know what the original gospel is and what the false ones are, you got to know that original gospel. You got to have it in your mind. You got to get it right. Many people talk easily about these ideas of, of knowing the difference between a counterfeit bill and a real bill. And they say over the years, you're supposed to touch and and feel that bill and look at that bill and examine that bill. And it's those people who have handled money the most, they don't even have to look at the bills to, to realize something's wrong with this one. The counterfeit is obvious when you know the original. And so do you understand the gospel well enough that if you were taught a false one, that man, you would be aware of it. You'd be like, that's not what the Bible teaches. And so what is that gospel? Well, it, it comes in four movements. Your Bible lays it out in four movements. The gospel isn't just simply Jesus died on the cross for my sins. You know, the, the Mormons can state that, and, and so can the Jehovah's Witnesses. There's lots of people who say that that way. But what does the gospel in the Bible say? Well, let's start this way. It starts in this idea of creation. You see, God made us in His image, and He made us to rule this world under Him forever. He designed us to care for his world as he would care for it, the animals as he would care for them, and turn this into an Edenic garden where God's rule and reign was everywhere through us who are made in his image. This, this is so critical, but the problem is we didn't want to do it God's way. We wanted to do it our way. And what happens then is we enter into what's called the fall. We fall from our state in which God had made us, and we fall into sin. We become sinners. We become those who abandon what God wants and the way God wants to do it for our own way and the way of other gods. In fact, we took on other gods, and we, we pushed God out of sight, and we worshipped things that were images of animals and images of other humans and, and of fake gods and things like this, guys. We put ourselves in a situation now where we were judged. We're dying. And one day we're going to face a judgment in which our sins will be declared before us, and we will have to pay for those sins. All of those evils that we have done to one another, other image bearers of God. And we fell, and we're going to die, and we're going to pay for those sins, and then we're going to go with the gods we served to where they go. And so there's a judgment of hell that has been laid upon us because we have fallen. And that's all the bad news, but God wasn't going to leave it there. God had a plan, and we call that plan redemption. He's going to buy back what was His. He's going to take back and redeem what was originally His in the first place. And He begins through His people, Israel. And He uses this nation, as imperfect as it was, to bring about His law and His truths and to show us who He was so that when He came as Jesus Christ, God on earth in the flesh, we would know Him. And then what's beautiful about this is that then Jesus didn't condemn us, 
No, what Jesus did is he took that judgment that we deserve for our sins on himself on the cross, and he took the death we deserve, and he died on a cross for us. God himself got in the way and was our substitute for our sins. Not only that, he defeated the other gods in his resurrection. He overcame death. He, he defeated them who wanted to get rid of him. And he now brought every opportunity for everyone to come in as their sacrifice. And when he rises from the dead, he also brings about a new creation that begins in his rule. It's the kingdom of God. And what's beautiful is he calls us to follow him and in his kingdom. And so we can rule and reign again now and in heaven. And he allows that to happen. So he saved us that we could love him. And now out of our salvation, we get to live for him in this world. And we get to bring that and spread that to everyone we know by sharing this message with our mouths to everyone that they may receive it. And when that happens and Christ returns, we end up in what's called the consummation. All of that, all that resurrection that's begun in our souls and everyone who receives it fully comes about in that perfection of creation. And it is in that day that creation is remade and we are remade and all that sin and all that suffering and all that garbage is gone. And we have the promise of that in Jesus and his rule. That's the gospel from creation, fall to being redeemed and back to what God has called us to be. That's the gospel. And I'll tell you what, false gospels are going to compromise one of these in some way. They're always going to mess, especially, one thing up. And that's this. In redemption, here's the thing. God came to us, and he did the work for us to make us right, to make us good, and to, save, and to rescue us, to save us. See, in Christianity, it's not do, it's done. All false religions will tell you is you need to do, do, do to make yourself right, to make yourself better, to get away from things. You need to act, act, act. In Christianity, if you thought that's what it's about, no, it's about being saved. You've been changed by God and everything else comes out of that as worship. Man, I want to do stuff, not because I have to. I want to do stuff for God because he saved me. I want to live out this kingdom because he gave me a purpose, not because I have to. It is worship. It's a response to the redemption. Everything else is an earning of redemption. In fact, there are various false gospels today that are being presented, even in the church. One of those is called progressive Christianity. And maybe you've not heard about this, but it is growing in its number. It's an old heresy that has come back, a false gospel. And really what they do is they, they say, hey, God, when God made you in the creation, there is no fall. In fact, God made you like you are. He made you with all your flaws and all your mess. So just embrace yourself. You're good enough. And man, God made you like that. So, so be good with your flaws and everything else because even the flaws are beautiful. And you'll hear some of this stuff. And so once you remove the need for to be perfected, once you see that there's a need for a Savior, you don't need Jesus to come down. So they don't get into Jesus' redemption and purchase of us from our sins and the forgiveness. They actually would say that's divine child abuse in their mind. Instead, what they say is Jesus is somebody we need to live like. And so if we were to think about this, here at Olive Branch, we say you need to love, live, and share Christ in order that God may be known, right? And the problem is that they fixate on not the love. They say, nah, you know, that's cool. There's God, and you can enjoy his love, but we need to live it out. 
We need to live, live, live. And, and there's no need to share because Jesus didn't do anything. There's no redemption, no purchase on the cross. No, that's just his example. We need to live this out. And the best way we do that is through social justice. And that's the terminology they use. And so what happens is I got I to gotta work hard and do well, and, and then God's happy with me because I live like God. And see, I don't even need to share anything because they're just going to come be with me. And we're all going to change the world together. This is a different gospel. And it distracts from the fact that there is a fall and a danger And we may want to perfect ourselves through psychology. We may want to perfect ourselves through technology. We may want to perfect ourselves through other things to get rid of the flaws or whatever in other ways, but those are all false gospels. Another current one that's very hot right now is critical race theory. And it's a different gospel. And if you want more on this, you can check out um, several different podcasts. One of them that is going to be helpful is called uh, What Would You Say? And I'll lead you down some other conversations. But let me just express why it's a different gospel. First of all, when it comes to creation, it fixates not on humanity as made in the image of God. It fixates humanity as different colors, different socioeconomic positions, different um, whether you're gay, straight, or whatever. And they look at your attributes, not your essence. And God looks at your essence and your value as being found in being imaging Him and values all those differences in our appearance because we're made for Him. But critical race theory divides it up and says, now, some have power, some do not. And all who have power are oppressors, and all who are oppressed are those who are who actually have the moral authority. And so the more you own power from your various identifications, the more you are an oppressor, and the less you have those things, the less you are that. And so the fall has nothing to do with sinfulness, has everything to do with only one sin, namely oppression and oppression only, which is a sin, but it's not the only sin. And in fact, the sad thing is that the more oppressed you are, the more morally excused you are for your behaviors to overcome the oppressor so that they can be put in their place. They need to repent, but no one here needs to repent. They didn't do anything wrong. And therefore, to be right, you need to be an activist. To become right, you need to get under an activist, activist, activist for the oppressed. That they could be the, the, the power base. Now, now, the real problem behind all of this is there's no way to redeem yourself. You just keep going and active and active and active, trying to make this happen. There's no ultimate redemption. Because there's no sin. There's some sins and other sins, and there's no need for Jesus to bring about any sacrifice because we're all different. We're divided up humanly. Instead of one equal group of sinners, all broken with all kinds of messes. So critical race theory actually offers you one thing. If you'll do the right stuff and say the right words, if you'll do it, you will be righteous. You'll be on the right side of history. Notice the terminology. You'll have lived out justice, which is another word for righteousness, but you got to do it, do it, do it. It's not done for you. And therefore, a response in our hearts and our lives. It's a do, do, do. You'll find it in Mormonism. You'll find it in Jehovah's Witnesses. You'll find it in every major religion. In order to accomplish what you long to be, you got to do it. But in Christianity, Jesus did it for you. We need to know the differences in these false religions or we will become people who are, who are taken captive and led astray from what God has given us as our stewardship. Guys, we can be 
distracted, but we need to not be distracted. And in fact, it's not just false gospels that, Timothy, that Timothy's told to look out for. He's told there's other distractions as well. Let's take a look at these. He says, nor these, these people who are teaching these things, don't let them devote themselves that means to fixate on the myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God, that is by faith. And this is one of those interesting things. We can get distracted by speculations. Do you ever realize that? I mean, speculations, man, speculating about theology or speculating about mythology or speculating about all these things. We can get so confused because there is so much out there. In their world, they were getting confused about the Old Testament stories and the genealogies and look at this Jewish amazing mythology and stuff because there was a lot of books being written. In fact, um, there's about four volumes uh, out there on the pseudepigrapha of the Old Testament. That's extra books that aren't part of the Old Testament that are actually written over the time period of a couple hundred years before Jesus to a few hundred years after, and they're just retelling the stories of the Old Testament. One of them, for example, called Jubilees, is super long in its genealogies, detailed, like they've been thinking about this and who's connected to who and what and how, and expanding the stories of the Old Testament into epic mythologies to make them kind of fixate on them. And look, it shows what people were thinking about, but it's not the Bible. It's not the gospel. It's not what we should be engaging with. And in fact, what's crazy is that as they dove into this stuff, it was capturing their minds. It was holding them, and then they were starting to get into speculations. Another translation to that word, speculations, is pointless arguments. They were literally starting to just argue about the genealogies and argue about the mythologies. And this is really what's going on, and we need to da 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 Man, church hasn't changed much, let's just be honest been around it long enough to watch all kinds of speculative theology and speculations and pointless arguments go up all over the place. This is what happens when we get fixated on, on myths or genealogies or, or pet theologies that, that begin to make us distracted. In fact, many Christians have left churches over their pet theologies or over their certain myths that they want to hold on to because their pastor doesn't want to believe in that myth or this. And some of you I'm going to tick off right now. Please hear me. My, God, my job is to guide. As the pastor goes, so goes the congregation. And I'm calling you guys not to get distracted by a lot of different things. You see, we can get fixated on speculative theologies, and we can get fixated on particular theologies that, that can totally distract us. See, we need to be, I'm okay with all kinds of crazy conversations. Like, we need to be okay with having conversations in the church about the age of the earth. We need to be okay in whether the earth is old or the earth is young or, or all this stuff and have those conversations and not cut people off. We need to be okay about talking through all the different end time schemes and that there are lots of Christians that don't believe in a rapture and there are lots of Christians that don't believe in a tribulation. There are lots of Christians that do. And we need to be able to go, wow, that's interesting. How'd you get to that conclusion? Where'd that come from? We need to be able to engage with all kinds of Christians who are going to believe different things about baptism and different things about, hey, what kind of church leader should we establish? Look, we're going to have all kinds of things you're going to get fixated on as you learn about them. It's going to grab you and hold you, and you're going to want to dive in deep, but there is a basic belief behind all those things that we need to hold on to. Let me give you an example. Older, younger, you know, the bottom line is God made it all. How he made it, let's talk about that. But God made it all, as long as we're not denying that God's the creator of the universe. God's a creator of this world. Or how about, you know, we believe Jesus is coming back. As long as you're not denying that Jesus is coming back, how he's coming back is a great conversation. 
or, or even this one, you know, how we organize the church is one thing, but that the church should have organization, that's the truth. And so this is called spiritual triage, a theological triage. Triage happens when you get into an emergency room. You have some guy who's been in a car accident and his leg is broke and he has internal bleeding and he's got a gash on his head. You don't first just start pulling out the band-aids to fix the gash in the head and then look and fix the, fix the leg while the guy is bleeding internally. No, there are some things that are more important than other things to fix first. And so you do triage. You say, which is the most important thing to deal with first? Same thing in theology. Guys, some of us get so fixated on the things that are not essential. What are the essentials? Essentials in the faith are these. Anything that if stopped being believed would erode the gospel. If you stop believing that the Bible is God's word, eventually the gospel is going to erode in your life because you have no way to found it. If you stop believing that there's a virgin birth and that Jesus was born a virgin, you're going to have some fights on your hands to try to figure out how Jesus could be sinless in this world and you're going to lose the gospel. If you're going to engage and say there are no miracles, you can't have a resurrection and you're going to wind up believing in no gospel. And here's the point. There are some things that are essential for us to believe as Christians. There are other things that are secondary. You know, we can believe different things about these. We can have Arminians and Calvinists and Molinists. We can have people who believe in free will and, and sovereignty. And we can have people who are walking around. They believe that it's one pastor over a church or elders over a church. Or, hey, over here is another group of people who believe it's all a hierarchy with bishops. And you know, We can have those arguments. And they are secondary level issues. There are some that are even lower than that. And I'll be honest, end times, the age of the earth, all that, that's kind of like a third level conversation. And the reason why is there are so many disagreements, so, it's so different, so out there, that we need to be careful not to pull things up and fixate on second and third level things to the detriment of what God has called us to do. I'm not saying they're not interesting. I'm not even saying they're not important. I'm saying we can't get so fixated we get distracted. And so let's have some spiritual triage and say, let's keep the main things, the main things, and let's allow the others to be where they are, be interested, but not let it keep us from what we need to do. And so we can't be distracted from being good stewards, and we can't be distracted by myths either. And all branch, let me just tell you, the myths are growing in our world. Uh, today, I would just generally say most of our myths I would just call conspiracy theories. And lots of conspiracy theories are popping up, whether you want to look at Pizzagate or QAnon or something like that. And there, have been, or, or there are literally people out there trying to argue that Hillary Clinton is a lizard creature from outer space or something like that. And they believe this as a conspiracy theory that's being hidden by all of these people and it can't get out. There are, there, you know, I'll be honest, in the church, we have gone through multiple times where we have believed that there is only one form of the Bible that is correct. We call it King James only versions, and they will look at this great conspiracy that happened in the past to bring about, the, to over, undermine the King James, and that's why we can't trust any other version of the Bible. Same arguments were made back when Jerome wrote the, uh, the Latin Vulgate. They all said, no, 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 we need the Greek Bible and only the Greek Bible. The same arguments were happening back when they translated the Old Testament into the Greek. My friends, there's nothing new under the sun when you know church history. And sometimes that historical perspective helps you begin to go, wait a minute. 
wait a minute, am I believing a mythology? Is there something that's grabbing me? Uh, it, maybe it's a broader, greater mythology of our culture. I'll give you an example. Darwinian evolution is a grand myth. It's a giant myth that tries to explain everything in life. And so we can't allow these kind of mythologies to capture us. We can't allow it to be overwhelming. Now, there's the idea of end of the world scenarios, great ice age, the overpopulation of the earth, the you know, destructive global climate change, zombie apocalypses. Some of these things begin to get into the levels of myth. They're not grounded on facts. They're not grounded in the conversations of those who are in the know. Um, uh, the final one that comes to mind right now is just the flat earth stuff. Don't get caught into these mythologies. Don't get caught into this silliness that's propagated by the, by the internet, but stay focused. It's a distraction. And if you are caught in it, you're like, well, how then do I discern the truth? How do we discern the truth? Well, let me give you a couple quick lines real quick. Number one, scripture says everything needs to have two to three witnesses. I'll give you a couple of these. Deuteronomy chapter 10 says, or chapter 19, sorry, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. If the Bible thinks the way you're going to establish a charge, which is a criminal historical event, is through two or three witnesses, man, anything that's going to, this is like the maximum, right? Well, other truths need to be established by two or three witnesses. Notice we have Three, we have four Gospels, three that are synoptic, one that is ultimate. We have the book of Acts. We have all of, the, all of these various testimonies in Scripture. Well, no, we're getting witnesses. In fact, Jesus confirms this. He says, if, it do, if he does not listen, speaking of somebody who's brought, been, a charge has been brought against them in church, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And again, I believe that this idea of witnesses as being established is what has enabled us to do the scientific method. It is what enables us to do legal and historical inquiry. It's why we can do journalism and know the truth. It has to be established by witnesses. And what do I mean by that? Somebody who tells the truth about what they saw. And see, it needs to be two or three witnesses because you've got to establish the fact of the matter by those who saw it. That means they need to be reliable witnesses. Witnesses can lie, but lies come out through questioning. Lies come out through asking keen observational questions, seeing that the witnesses don't line up. There's things that we have learned over the years that help investigators find out the truth. In fact, if you want to learn a little bit about this, Go read the book, um, the several different books that are out there that are, that are called God's Crime Scene is one of them, along with Cold Case Christianity. He teaches you, J. Warner Wallace teaches you various forms of these methods and how to spot a conspiracy, how to spot an untruth. And so number one, you got to remember that's got to have two to three reliable witnesses. Otherwise, it's gossip and an anonymous source is not a source. If they can't prove to you they were there, it isn't truth. And that's the situation we need to realize. Next, it's got to be theological and logical. Guys, if it's not in the Bible, if it doesn't fall within the bounds of the Bible, it's a lie. You don't need to go there. If you've got a conspiracy thinking something going on out there and you don't think God's in control of that, that they've got all the power, man, that's out, out of bounds of the Bible. If it's 
if it doesn't fit logically together, meaning it doesn't actually match what we know about our world, and it doesn't match together, like there's contradictions in the conversation, you don't just excuse it, it shows you that it's wrong. So no, it has to be theological, it has to be logical, and it also has to, you have to realize that ultimately the truth is going to come out. There's no conspiracy that hasn't really been discovered. And every real conspiracy that's discovered to be successful afterwards was down, limited down to like three people. But God says that everything that's in the dark is going to be revealed on the rooftops. And so these conspiracy theorists that are promulgating their stuff on the internet, just don't give them any time. It's a distraction. It's a mythology. The bottom line is they distract from the stewardship that we're called to. Notice how Paul puts it. He says this, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. We have a stewardship that is from God by faith. What is that stewardship? It's the gospel. Don't get distracted from the gospel. Don't get distracted from what our calling is. It is to bring the gospel. Look, I'm not against theology. I'm against your theology getting in the way of you promoting the, your faith to other people. Uh, you know, we need to love Christ. And you get into theology because you love Christ and you want to know Christ. And you want to know what he taught us and you want to know what he led us to. But if it's keeping you only there and you're not living out what you believe, if it's not coming out of your life, you're not joyful and kind and loving, man, you're not going to get to sharing Christ. You're going to be off the rails. You're just going to be fixated on a monk in your, little, in your little cloister. No, come out, live for Christ, and then use the word share Christ. You go all the way. Don't get distracted by just living for him, thinking, yeah, one day they all see it. No, the word gospel is a proclamation. You have to use words. We've got to love and live and share Christ because the one we love and the one we live for, we're going to share about. Be it your children, be it your job, whatever it is. Don't allow it to distract you from the gospel. We need to allow these things to come all the way through. Don't allow the theology. Don't allow false teachings. Don't allow mythology to capture you. And so let me just ask you two questions. Is something distracting you? I'm not talking about in this video. I'm asking you in your life, is something distracting you? Are you distracted by a theology, a pet theology, something that's just caught you and it's keeping you from engaging with the gospel? Is something distracting you, some false teaching that you've got to do, do, do to make God happy and you haven't realized that God did it and now you get to rejoice and live out what he's leading you in? What's distracting you? Is it some theory, some conspiracy theory? Drop it. Get away. Get back in the Word of God. Get back to connecting with people. Get back to building relationships with your neighbors. Get back to these pieces. Guys, we cannot allow that just to continue. And I guess the second question then is this. Is a false teacher attracting you? Are you listening to someone's podcasts and somebody's ideas that are, that are dragging you in and making you begin to doubt your faith, to, to believe that perhaps, you know, this is not what you thought it was, that maybe Jesus didn't raise from the dead, whatever. Turn it off. Get back to the Bible. Get into his word. Get engaged. Go read, how, go read some responses by, by pastors, apologists, and scholars on these people and dig in and find out what is being said because here's the thing. I'm going to tell you the truth. False teachers are attractive. They're powerful, but we have to be ready. We need to know the authentic gospel to notice. So get back to the gospel. 
you know, God gave you leaders like me. He gave you uh, teachers, pastors, and elders in our church so that you could get some of this information. And so if you're feeling a little lost, if you're feeling a little drugged down, if you're feeling, please don't attack your pastor today, but know that we're available to answer questions and help you out. And if that's you and you need that help, let us know. Contact the church, ask your question, send your emails out to us, and you can send it through info at olive-branch.org, and you can let us know, or info at obcc.church, and you can let us know your questions. We would love to do our best to begin to help you not get distracted anymore and get fixated on what's most important, the gospel, the stewardship of God. Let me pray for us. Father, we realize we can get so easily distracted. We can be brought into so many weird things. We ask that instead you would help us focus and step forward as we love you deeply. May it motivate us to live for you and share you wherever we go. God, would you just lead us in that? We pray that you would engage us now. In Jesus' name, amen.